Welcome to World of Soundtracks, a monthly podcast where we explore storytelling aspects in films and TV through music. Whether it is comparing book adaptations, observing themes over a series, or microanalyzing the choice of instruments, we look at how the story is told and moves us. I am your host, Ruth Munch, and today we will be looking at the musical world from the Harry Potter series. This is the second episode of a two-parter regarding the musical world of Harry Potter. If you haven't listened to the other one first, go ahead and stop and then come back to this one. I highly recommend listening to the first one focusing on John Williams before listening to this one, as all the other composers built on what John Williams had created. These composers were also working with different directors as the stories got progressively darker, so the tone does begin to shift. However, there is still a bit of exploration into new places or new creatures as the story continues. As a little recap, John Williams used both a combination of late romantic orchestral style with a fun, quirky imitation of early 20th century composers, such as Prokofiev or Stravinsky. He used the celeste for the sound of magic, as well as using choir from the beautiful Patronus light to slightly more spooky and uncertain magical elements, such as the ghosts or moving stairs. He later expanded this world to include instruments from the Renaissance period, giving it a sense of age and oddity, and then began to mix jazz in for more familiar colors always combining what is familiar to the audience's ears, mixed with a little something different for the world of magic and those who inhabit it. In the fourth film, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, the world is expanded past Britain to the wider magical world. This film is a return to the traditional Western late romantic orchestral style under the composer Patrick Doyle, after John Williams had pushed the boundaries with Renaissance instruments and jazz in film number three. That being said, Patrick Doyle does expand in a new way, and that is through imitating the sound of traditional folk tunes. This expansion is first heard during the World Cup of Quidditch, where the themes represent the two teams from Ireland and Bulgaria. The Irish music matches Celtic fiddling and drums. The Bulgarian team uses male choir, almost shouting, with low repeated string patterns and low brass. It is less melodic, but gives a sense of weight and presence. This music is also used for Victor Crumb's entrance to Hogwarts with his classmates and teacher. The music for the two schools that compete for the Triwizard Tournament at Hogwarts also reflects a bit of the culture and heritage of each of these schools. The music that plays as these schools arrive may not be their school anthems, but it does give a flavor as to the kind of people who are arriving. The girls from the French Beaubaton school is accompanied by high instruments, such as violins, flutes, harp, and trumpets, and a lot of swirling motion as they arrive in a flying carriage. In contrast, the boys from Durmstrang is in the low strings and brass as their ship ascends out of the lake, resembling a lot of Russian orchestral music. 
the names of the competitors come out of the Goblet of Fire, the instrumentation continues in the same manner, even if not the exact same melody, with flutes, harp glissandos, high violins, and celeste for fleur, followed by trumpet, low brass, and lower strings for Victor Crumb. This is followed by a piece in strings and French horn for Cedric Diggory, who is representing Hogwarts, called Hogwarts Hymn. This piece has a complete version on the soundtrack, which is very much in the style of Doyle's music under big emotional monologues in his Shakespeare movies. It also plays at the very end of the film during the main credits. While there's no school Quidditch match in this school year due to the focus on the tournament, the opening to the tournament begins with a fanfare reminiscent of the Olympic-style opening to Quidditch in film one, featuring a lot of brass and percussion, sounding very celebratory and grand. This film also includes a school song for Hogwarts called Hogwarts March, which is an instrumental marching band song. Similarly to the previous school songs by John Williams, it is only heard in part in the film, and the whole thing is expanded on the soundtrack. It matches many school pep band songs played in brass, heard as the contestants head towards the final challenge, as the winner is most likely going to be Gryffindor, whether it is Cedric or Harry. Unfortunately, the opening part of this march also plays as Harry arrives with Cedric's dead body at the end of the last challenge, and it takes a few seconds before the music is abruptly stopped, once everyone realizes a tragedy instead of victory has transpired. This is often what most of the audience associates with the school song, which is quite sad. The middle portion of the march is actually heard more frequently throughout the film, as a little motif for Harry and Hogwarts throughout the film and tournament. This theme is first played in the French horns as the students of Hogwarts await for the other schools to arrive outside at the beginning. It 
also plays in small little fragments during Harry's fight against the dragon anytime he gets a little win, such as when the firebolt arrives and he is able to fly away initially. Of course, it ends in a triumphant version at the end as he gets the golden egg and then is seen rejoicing with the Gryffindor students afterwards, holding it up in the common room, complete with timpani and cymbal crashes. brings back the return of two very different creatures that had music in previous films. The first of these, of course, are the dragons. Before that first challenge, Hagrid invites both Harry, under the invisibility cloak, and the headmistress of Abaton to see what is coming up. Unlike the cute, fun music of the first time Harry sees a baby dragon, this music reflects a sense of danger as he sees the large, fire-breathing dragons in cages barely being contained. The music is ominous with brass, percussion, and low strings, as Harry is understandably a little freaked out. The second return is the return of the ghost Moaning Myrtle, as Harry's in the prefect's bath trying to solve the mystery of the golden egg that has the clue for the next challenge. Instead of using the oboe, the lower English horn plays a tango as she flirts with Harry, before telling him to open the egg under the water. As Harry puts his head under the water to hear what is being sung when he opens it, a beautiful voice sings the next clue about the mare people. The voice is actually Patrick Doyle's daughter singing, which is a nice little family moment for him to include. To match the sound of water, there's an extended overlapping of the choir repeating the same melody just a few beats off from each other, so it blends into each other and also has the effect of a large reverberating church building as well. Come seek us where our voices sound We cannot sing above the ground And now along you'll have to look To recover what we took Come 
The same effect is used in the Black Lake as Harry seeks to find what was taken, which was his friend Ron. But the choir is a bit more unsettling and dangerous than the beautiful music earlier, as the mere people turn out to be an unfriendly bunch as he swims through their realm in the lake, especially when he tries to free more than one person. One other thing that is special or unique to this film is the Yuletide Ball, in celebration of the schools coming together. These dances are very much in the style of the Viennese Waltz, such as this Treasure Waltz by Johann Strauss Jr. from 1885. While John Williams was both imitating and messing with a waltz, Doyle aimed to be serious and romantic in this imitation. Both Neville's dance in the preparation for the ball and Harry's waltz occurring during the ball follow a similar sound using a lot of swirling harps, violins, and flutes to give the fun illusion of a grand ball, even though the main characters may not actually be enjoying themselves to a great extent. I will also add that these waltzes resemble Doyle's waltzes in the newer live-action Cinderella, should you want to compare another magical ball. There is a switch in focus and tone in both the narrative and music once Voldemort returns in full form at the end of film four. There's less exploration of a magical new world or new creatures, or even the expansion of the world past Britain as the journey focuses more and more towards the ultimate battle in the last four films. However, there are still a few musical ideas, places, and creatures that are newly experienced or continued. Harkening back to film three is the presence of the Dementors who attack Dudley and Harry in the summer at the beginning of film five. The use of dissonant strings are continued for the music of the Dementors under the composer Nicholas Hooper. What slightly changes is the use of low guttural male choir, almost throat singing underneath with a lack of clear melody. He still uses voices, but in a different way for the cold danger of the soul being sucked away, while the full tonal choir returns as Harry uses his Patronus to send them away and save his cousin.
In a similar way, choir and throat singers are used in the Hall of Prophecies within the Ministry of Magic, as Harry and friends are looking for a specific prophecy. The choir adds to the ambience with high electronics, as they are surrounded by numerous prophecies. The voices reflecting both the eerie light and the voices of prophecies around them. And then the low throat singers come in with Hedwig's theme playing in the French horn, as they see the one specifically for Harry. While Patrick Doyle writes primarily in his own late romantic style, Hooper straddles the line in following in the footsteps of both Doyle and John Williams, using ideas and instrumentations that both composers use to create the world, while still creating his own musical palette and unique melodies. One of the new places Harry gets to experience is the Ministry of Magic with Mr. Weasley, as he goes to his trial for using underage magic near the beginning of the film. It has a fun and comedic quality as they enter through a telephone booth with the use of Celeste, established for the world of magic, as well as bells and clarinets. As a side note, the bells and Celeste are also used for Professor Umbridge in this film, who is sent from the Ministry of Magic in working with their authority. Once they enter, there's a little more dissonance as they magically enter the Ministry, followed by a repeated violin pattern, which in all honesty sends me briefly into Les Mis vibes. It expands and grows, adding in more instruments as Harry sees the immensity and grandeur of this government building, similar to his first experience at Gringotts Bank or Hogwarts, being a bit overwhelmed in seeing everything. As everyone walks around to their job, and as the melody grows, it is a bit minimalistic in style, which is a repeated pattern that slowly adds or changes things slightly over time. This is heard most clearly in John Adams' Short Ride on a Fast Machine, written in 1986.
for Harry Potter, this overlap of repeated patterns is heard as he heads to the elevator, with a variety of woodwinds playing over pizzicato in the cellos. It matches the idea of many cogs working in this government building, supposedly working for good, and yet trying to deny any signs of Voldemort returning, making Harry and Dumbledore the enemy instead. It is a place of active work, but also turning around and around in circles. Bells and comedy that play as Harry enters the ministry are also used much later as Professor Umbridge and her band of students try in vain to find where Dumbledore's army is meeting within Hogwarts. Choir, harp, and Celeste begin the sequence as the room appears to Harry and the rest of Dumbledore's army, leading the scene into a comedy of dance between the two groups, between hiding and learning, and those seeking to take it down. Using the choir in Celeste is also a nice callback to the many times Hogwarts has done something magical. The combination of the Celestin bells being used for umbrage from the Ministry of Magic is juxtaposed with Hogwarts magically offering a room needed for these students to learn defense of the dark arts together. A new instrument is also added with the xylophone in this film, combined with a mixture of high percussion, as well as the harp, bells, and celeste for Dumbledore's army, while bassoon, often used for comedy and buffoons, and the bass clarinet are used for umbrage's group, including Filch and Draco Malfoy. Nicholas Hooper also continues the idea of using folk tunes in his films from Patrick Doyle, with the Weasley stomp resembling the same Celtic fiddling as the Irish Quidditch team, which makes sense considering the twins were rooting for that team. This is used as they create mayhem in the exams in the fifth film, and for their joke shop in film six.
the idea of using Celtic music for the Weasley family is also continued in the seventh film, during Bill Weasley's wedding reception. Another new instrument heard, along with the xylophone, is the accordion, which hasn't been heard since the night bus in film three. Here it is heard as Harry, Ron, and Hermione find out that Hagrid was back after Christmas break, after a semester-long absence, and they run to visit him, heard in the running scales in xylophone and strings. The accordion is another instrument associated with folk music and provides a different color in visiting Hagrid, who seems to get several of the older instruments to represent him. The other musical idea that is continued from previous films are the themes of flying. There are two instances of flying, one at the beginning with the Order of the Phoenix, and one at the end as Harry and friends go to supposedly rescue Sirius. The first one includes French horns, violins, swirling flutes, and a few harp glissandos in the same manner as John Williams, but with a theme for the Order which also includes snare drum to sound a little more battle-ready. Both of the flying themes include an element of danger, but the thrill and joy of flying over the country is still felt. The second is on Thestrals, a creature that is invisible to most unless they have seen someone die. And there is a sense of urgency to rescue Sirius from Voldemort, which is why the music is partially in minor and has repeated lower string patterns. However, it still has many of the typical flying instruments, such as soaring violins with French horns and harp glissandos. In the sixth film, flying takes form in the return of Quidditch. Nicholas Hooper took John Williams' second melody from The Prisoner of Azkaban and turned it from a depressing, losing game played in the rain surrounded by Dementors to a more joyful and fun game sound. The motif is less disjointed and dissonant, becoming more of a recognizable melody over moving string patterns and rhythmic syncopations, still providing tension for the game, especially for Ron as the goalkeeper. This game focuses on Ron's victory instead of Harry's, with Ron believing he had taken the luck potion and blocking every goal. (laughs) ¶¶ 
liquid luck potion was a prize for Harry, having used the book of the Half-Blood Prince in potions class. Not knowing who was the author of the extra notes, Harry became obsessed with this book, to the concern of Hermione and Ginny and slight envy of Ron. As they take the book from him originally in the Gryffindor common room to discover that it claims to be the property of the Half-Blood Prince, there involves a mixture of fun in the flute, celeste, and pizzicato, but hints of darkness around this book as well. While much of the music involving the potions class and using the book are fun and humorous, especially seeing Harry succeed in an area he had previously struggled with, while Hermione is frustrated and others fail, it also gives Harry a chance to spend more time with Professor Slughorn, who likes to collect famous or promising students. The result of this leads to Slughorn's Christmas time party, which brings back a form of jazz, resembling Dave Brubeck in the background, with bass, drum kit, clarinets, and violins providing both a mood, but also providing lots of space for dialogue in the interactions of characters within the party. After Harry ends up taking the lucky potion himself in order to get answers from Slughorn regarding missing memories of Tom Riddle, he ends up going to visit Hagrid with Slughorn accompanying him. In the process, they find Hagrid mourning the death of Aragog. This does not bring back the creepy spider music from before, but instead it harkens back to the idea of using folk music for things that are old, or in this case, creatures that are old. A solo violin plays a mournful tune following the lament style of British folk songs, including the rhythmic fast-slow, fast-slow that happens in many of these songs, with strings joining in partway through, giving a sense of age and timelessness to an old creature in this magical world, but in a familiar style to the audience as Slughorn gives the eulogy. This is also fitting with older styles and instruments for Hagrid, as he is the one grieving.
With Alexandre Desplat comes the return of older instruments, such as recorders and lutes, while adding in some instruments from around the world, expanding the music palette with new timbres, especially in part one of the Deathly Hollows. There is also a return to the Ministry of Magic with repeated minimalistic patterns, again sounding like part of a machine or a ticking clock, but this time a bit darker as Harry, Ron, and Hermione are using Polyjuice Potion, pretending to be other people as they enter. Not to mention seeing the disturbing changes such as the statue crushing down muggles and other creatures heard in the minor strings over harp. The return of the recorders occurs in the Ministry of Magic, as Harry walks through the workroom where the propaganda pamphlets are being mass-produced, while he heads to Umbridge's office, creating a distraction with detonators and causing chaos. It is a mixture of recorders, bassoons, strings, and even a lute used for comedic purposes in this old establishment, with an element of chaos, but also repeated patterns, as there is a visual, precise timing in the process of producing the pamphlets. The trio escape through the fireplaces with their disguises having worn off. Pamphlets are flying around, and they are being chased both by people within the ministry and dementors. Following in the same vein as Williams and Hooper, choir sings along with the brass as the dementors chase after the trio as they escape in the fireplace. Patronus also returns in this film with high violin harmonics, celeste, and high voices, keeping the sound to something beautiful, high, and pure. Here, it is not being used against the Dementors, but instead leading Harry to the lake, 
where he can find the Sword of Gryffindor, which will help him defeat the Horcruxes that they are seeking to destroy. This Patronus is a doe, in honor of Lily's Patronus, which also happens to be similar to Harry's stag. However, there is a sense of unease in this one as the pattern underneath repeats, almost a bit eerie as Harry is following it out into the unknown in the dark, not knowing whether it is a friend or a foe sending this Patronus out for him to follow. Several of the unusual instruments used by Desplat are connected with older objects or stories, as Harry, Hermione, and Ron are sent on a journey after the reading of Dumbledore's will. A therabo, a deeper, longer lute, plays with the flute and celeste, as Dumbledore leaves Harry the Gryffindor sword near the beginning, even though it was locked up at that moment for safekeeping. choices of instruments are especially connected to the Deathly Hallows, both with the symbol and the story of the brothers from Godric's Hollow. As this is a story that became a legendary children's story, using instruments such as the Therabo aids the older nature of the story mixing the old with the new. The motif includes an augmented second, often used in music from the Middle East, gypsies, and other cultures that have been around for centuries. The first time it appears is when Harry and Hermione visit the graveyard in Godric's Hollow at Christmas time. The cello and Therabo play as Harry looks at his parents' gravestone, while Hermione finds the symbol of the Deathly Hallows on another gravestone. Later on, Hermione puts together that the young man she had seen in a picture of Batilda Bagshot's house was Grigorovich, someone who had stolen the Elder Wand, part of the Deathly Hallow trio of objects, as the Therabo and clarinet play. The majority of instruments are played for Zeno Lovegood, who wears the symbol of the Deathly Hallows around his neck, and a bit of an oddity himself. So there is a mixture of the Japanese Sakahuchi flute, Hamdrung, which is a newer Swiss steel drum, lute and percussion, along with strings and piano. Thank you. 
Hermione reads the story of the Deathly Hallows at the Lovegood home, putting together that the gravestone she had seen was connected with the story of the three brothers and their objects, the Elder Wand, the Resurrection Stone, and the Invisibility Cloak, making one the master of death if they had all three. This is accompanied by the harp and therabow, celeste, hung drum, and low strings. The hung drum repeating a note gives the impression of a clock ticking, as Zeno keeps looking out anxiously because he is going to hand them over to Statures. Both the trio and Mr. Lovegood are aware that they are running out of time. Japanese sakuhachi flute is used in the 7th and 8th film for Voldemort, particularly through his horcruxes, especially the snake Nagini. While I did cover the majority of that in the podcast focusing on Voldemort and villains, it is important to note that it was used as Voldemort moves the gravestone of Dumbledore to collect the Elder Wand, in seeking to find a weapon that could destroy Harry, and in his quest to defeat death itself. While the majority of the last film is focused on the final battle between Harry and Voldemort, it does bring back a few things and creatures that were first seen in film number one, providing a bookend in many ways, even though the circumstances and composers are quite different. One of these is revisiting Gringotts Bank. Instead of the wonder mixed with a little quirkiness, it is much more sinister, considering that both Ron and Hermione are pretending to be Bellatrix Lestrange and her goon while Grippick the Goblin and Harry are underneath the invisibility cloak. They are trying to sneak in without being caught, so most of the music reflects that aspect, as well as Harry's view underneath the invisibility cloak, heard in the lack of clear rhythm and in a shroud of sound. But it does also involve a version of the hammered dulcimer, most likely the cymbalon, which is a concert Eastern European version. This provides a different musical color for the goblins, while also providing an unease to the whole situation. Guarding the vaults is a chained-up dragon, 
one that has been treated poorly by the goblins to Hermione's horror. However, it does provide a means of escape at the end as the trio jumps onto the dragon, combining a mixture of dissonance as they set the dragon free, and the dragon begins to destroy the building as it flies up. The brass climbs up with the dragon, even changing keys until a moment of silence as it arrives on the roof before they start flying. Using many of the classic flying instruments, such as high violins, trumpets, and swirling flutes, as it plays Lily's theme, one of the main themes from that film. The final battle is brought to Hogwarts, and it is there that Professor McGonagall uses a spell to bring the statues to life to protect the school. It returns the idea of the school itself being full of magic, but instead of the awe and wonder at the beginning of the journey, this is a more solemn moment with the strings, drums, and brass playing, as the stone statues jump down and the professors join spells to provide a protection around the school. It combines the feeling of magic with the swirling flutes with the preparation for battle with a snare drum and timpani, while the gravity and sorrow of this coming to pass is heard with the low minor string patterns. choir with Hogwarts returns, not only with the statues, but also as the students and portraits are running in panic. Ron and Hermione run to tell Harry that they are going to the Chamber of Secrets to get the Basilisk Fang to destroy the Horcruxes, and the staff continue to prepare for the upcoming battle, with little hints of the statues' music in the French horn.
This combination of choir and preparation for battle continues after Harry speaks with Rowena Wavenclaw about where the diadem is located. As he heads towards the Room of Requirement, everyone is getting into their places to wait for Voldemort to attack. String patterns, timpani, celeste, and choir play before moving to a quieter clarinet as they begin to wait. The statue's theme returns over the beating of drums as Ron, Hermione, and Harry run through the courtyard battle to the boat shed to kill the snake, while the statues are fighting trolls. They also pass their friend Lavender, who has died, and Aberforth Dumbledore sending away Dementors with the Patronus, as the choir is added, and the music adds a few major chords, with the violins rising up even higher. This is perhaps the most tragic version of the theme with the moving strings, as they see friends dead or fighting for their lives. One of the last things that is connected through many of the movies is the use of a brass fanfare for celebration or victory. Throughout much of the series, it was saved for Quidditch matches or the tournament. However, one of the most important victories is the final victory over death, with the resurrection and reveal of Harry Potter being alive, after he had been killed and then declared dead. Neville gives a moving speech that those who died are still with them, and that they didn't die in vain, followed by a long timpani roll as Harry rolls out of Hagrid's arms and reveals himself alive, as the brass, especially trumpets, play. Perhaps not as joyful as the ones in previous movies, but no less important at the final crux of the battle.
This film essentially has two endings. The first with the trio at Hogwarts, now destroyed and in ruins after the battle, as Harry breaks and throws away the Elder Wand, which had become his and one of the ways he could defeat Voldemort at the end. Since they are weary and have a hard time believing it is all over, the music is much quieter, the harp opening with the statue's ostinato, seeing the stone rubble all around them. Low flute and strings play as they hold hands, having survived this journey together. Then the Celestin harp play a major version of the statue's ostinato, as they are able to look to a future where everything will be restored, leading into the second ending, which is heard and seen in the epilogue with their kids, which will restore Hogwarts to its former glory, bringing awe and wonder to a new generation of magicians. The world and characters change in their journey over the eight films, as does the music. But underneath, there is a foundation of folk, classical, quirky chords and instruments, choir, and celeste that sets apart the world of magic, and the places, creatures, and things unique to that world. A varied but beautiful journey of a boy, the chosen one, who discovered his place and his purpose within the world of magic, and the people and friends he met along the way. If you have listened to all my various podcasts on Harry Potter and made it through this two-parter, thank you for coming along my musical journey with all eight films of Harry Potter. In the next podcast episode, I will be returning to Jane Austen in Mansfield Park. You can join in on discussing all the musical moments regarding your favorite place, creature, style, or instrument within the Harry Potter films in the Facebook group, World of Soundtracks, or on Twitter and Instagram at WO Soundtracks. Please like and subscribe share with friends, or even leave a review. I highly recommend subscribing so you don't miss when the next episode comes out. Until next time, happy listening! A special thanks to all those involved to make this podcast happen, especially Edith Mudge for the title music and Lindsay Bergsma for the graphics. This is World of Soundtracks. Soundtracks.